0: The title of today's sermon is Reformed, Yet Always Reforming. And that means a lot of different things to different people. Uh, To some people it means we're coming out of the Reformed tradition and yet we're conforming to culture, (laughs) sadly. Others think it means, well, we just keep getting better and better in our theology and getting more and more perfect, and that's just as sad. I think what it means is, We've accepted the truth of God's word and we see who we are. And in our daily walk, we're becoming more and more like Jesus by His grace, conforming more and more to His image. That's what I think the purpose of the book of Nehemiah is about. The very first sermon I preached when I started this series was rebuilding the broken. The obvious reference is to the wall, but ultimately I don't think that's what the book is about. It's not about rebuilding a wall, it's about rebuilding God's people. Making them what He's created them to be. So let's look this morning at uh, Nehemiah 13. It's going to be a long passage, and I couldn't see anything I wanted to cut out of it, so I'm going to read it all. And then I'm going to uh, confess my sin right now. Uh, I'm reading out of the NIV, so stone me later. I don't care. All right. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water and had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard the law... They excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. And he was closely associated with Tobiah, the Ammonite, if you remember from earlier. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms, I put Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Madatha, I can't see it. It's dark up here. Madaniah their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God. And do not blot out what I have done so faithfully for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loaves. And they were bringing this all into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you were doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all of this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up even more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves." Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God even made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign. And assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor. Oh, my God. You know, you would think, I mean, what would you expect to be happening here in chapter 13? I mean, we've already, dug, dug us led us through chapters 10, 11, and 12, and we've seen some extraordinary things. The people of Israel have listened to the Word of God. They have recognized their sin. They have grieved over it. They have repented of it. They have changed the way they lived. They renewed their covenantal relationship with God and vowed that they would live according to His Word. You would think that chapter 13 would be a celebration. It would be a song of joy flowing out of Nehemiah, of all that God had done, and the change that had come to His people. But it's not, is it? It's extraordinary in how so short a time the people of Israel have broken every promise they made to God in chapters 10, 11, and 12. They have stopped doing everything they promised they would do. They have done all the things that they promised they would not do. And you know, you look at that and, and my, my tendency is to say, really? 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 What is wrong with you? And the answer to that is this. What is wrong with them is that they're just like us. You know, this isn't the first time they've been in this position. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua has led them into the promised land. They've conquered most of the land. They didn't finish the job, but they have conquered most of the land that are ready to settle into their respective parcels of land. And Joshua gathers the people together and he looks out upon them and he said, now you must choose whom you will serve. And the people with one voice cry out, we will serve the Lord. And you would think it would be the highlight of Joshua's life. And yet he looks at the people and I know with intense sadness, says, You are not able. Those are chilling words. Chilling. Because you see, the Israelites in Joshua's day were no different than these Israelites. They had made vows of what they would do to God, but they were promising things they were not able to do. And again, we're no different. We come to God and we make all kinds of promises. All the things that we will do. But as we read in Romans chapter 7, as Doug read for us earlier, the truth is we're not able to do it. We try to serve God out of our own strength. We try to apply the talents and the gifts that we have to make God happy. And every time it ends up not being about God, but being about us. And we fall even further into sin than we were before. See, the message of the book of Nehemiah, the message of all of Scripture is this. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's not about us it's about him it's not about we what we can do it is about what he is willing by grace to do for us it is not about our desires it's about his desire for us and if we're going to be the people of god we have to be a people that are willing to trust him and stop living for ourselves, and put our lives into His hands. And what we see here in Nehemiah's response to the people in chapter 13, is just a a small picture of what that looks like. Let's look at that quickly this morning. If we're going to to be the people of God, we have to be a people that makes Him our first priority. First priority. This is not a secret. God says it himself. He says, I am a jealous God. God hates anything that comes between him and his beloved. It's not that he's disappointed. He hates it. God demands our full love. And what is it that comes between us and God, we see the whole litany of things here in chapter thirteen in verses seven through thirteen we see that that the people themselves came between them and God. They professed love for God, but God was ir- irrelevant in their daily lives. Their desires were more important than god 's desires for them their their desire for Peace and harmony and comfort led to allowing Tobiah a place to live in the temple. A clear desecration of the temple. A desecration of the glory of God that the the temple represented. The glory of God living there. They didn't care. Their desire to increase their wealth led them to stop giving the tithe. They got in the way of their relationship with God. In verses 5 through 22, we see that things and money got between them and God. It's seen in their Sabbath observance. Nehemiah comes and he is appalled by what he sees. God has said to Israel, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. To remember me and who I am and what I have done for you. And yet he says, all throughout Judah, people are doing business on the Sabbath. They are treading grapes and making wine and selling things. There is commerce wagons coming in and out of Jerusalem on the Sabbath. He says, what's wrong with you? When did you make commerce and things more important than God? In verses 23 through 29, we see that they wanted to be just like everybody else. They let their image, their reputation get between them and God. They wanted to be like everyone else and so they embraced their religions. They gave their sons and daughters in marriage to people who practiced other religions. Ultimately, they were more important and their desires were more important than the holiness and glory of God. They were in control, not God. They would do what they wanted to do. And we need to be very careful to understand the words in Ecclesiastes. that says, there is nothing new under the sun. Because these are the very same things that dim our affections for God. This is where the battle is. The battle is not here on Sunday morning. The battle is in our everyday lives. Do we live our lives according to the professions that we make? The first question that we ask is, do you love Jesus? And I suspect that every person here, or almost every person, would unhesitatingly say, yes, I do. But you see, that's really not the question that's being asked. The question that's being asked is, do you love Jesus more than you love everything else? Because, you see, that's what matters. It's all that matters. Do you love Jesus more than you love yourself? More than your plans and what you want for your life? Are you more more concerned about your will and the freedom of your will rather than God's will for you? Are there things in your life that you keep separated from God? This is God's and this is my commitment to God, but this is mine. And you don't get to touch this. Do you love your things more than you love God? Would you walk away from your job if it was causing you to sin. Would you give up your wealth, all of it, if God asked you to? When I was a boy, I grew up in a town that had a massive printing plant. Back in the 60s, it was, my little town was called the comic book capital of the world. Every comic book printed in the United States for years was printed in this small town in Illinois. The town grew wealthy because of it. Thousands of jobs were provided. But, as, all, as always happens, uh, the, the allure of comic books faded. Pretty soon there weren't any comic books to print. And so they began to look for other things to print. And they found a new niche. They began printing pornography. The most awful, degrading kinds of pornography. And it was amazing how little was said about it. After all, these were jobs. The town depended on that plant. A man in our church, an elder, was responsible for quality control. The pastor came to him one day and he said, How can you do this? How can you be a follower of Jesus, much less an elder? And be doing this and the elder put his head down and he says you don't understand he says I'm getting close to retirement if I quit now I lose my retirement I lose everything I've worked for he said do you think it would be okay if I just doubled my tithe things were more important than Jesus Do you love Jesus more than your image? Are you more concerned about what this world and your neighbors and your co-workers think of you than you are His love for you? Does it cause you to be quiet? Does it cause you not to talk about Jesus because people might look at you funny? Do you love His word more than your own opinion or your preferences? And you see, these questions aren't asked by God through His Word in order to embarrass us or to make us feel guilty. God presents these questions to us because He loves you. He loves all of us. And these are the only questions that matter. God is a jealous God, and He doesn't want anything coming between us and His love. And God will not accept second place. I was in a counseling session once with a couple and the man had committed adultery and they were sitting there across from me and it was tense. It was a terrible time. And finally the man got angry, he threw up his hands, he said, I don't get it. He said, why can't I just love both of them? And if you know me at all, you probably know that didn't set well with me. What I wanted to do was come across the desk and grab him by the throat, shaking, slapping. Beat some sense into him. I held my temper. We talked about it. I went home angry. And then I realized. I understand his question now. Because I so often do the same thing. I'm the bride of Christ. And yet I want to love the things of this world more than him. And the hardest question in my heart that I often raise, maybe not actual in these actual words, but in reality, is why can't I love both? We have to make Him our first priority. Second, we see that not only does Jesus have to be our first priority if we are children of God, but He also has to be our first pursuit loving Christ requires a radical commitment to Him when we come to Jesus we're not just adding a commitment to our lives but we are putting everything else to death and He becomes our only true commitment just as we love Him above all else we have to live for Him above all else (laughs) what is Nehemiah's response to Tobiah? this is where I see Nehemiah being a man after my own heart he got mad He didn't call a meeting. He didn't gather the officials and say, Guys, we really need to work through this. This has to change. He got angry. He went into the temple. He took Tobiah's personal belongings out of the room that was serving as his house, and he began chucking it into the street. If Tobiah was there watching, I don't know, but I do know this, if he was watching, he didn't do anything. He was angry because God's glory was being diminished by this sin. And Nehemiah lived for the glory of God and he would have none of it. He clears the temple. It's a precursor of what Jesus would do when He too comes into the temple and clears it out of love for the glory of God. But He didn't stop there. The men who had married pagan wives... It says he beat them and he pulled their hair out. Seems a little extreme, doesn't it? But in his context, in his day, it wasn't extreme at all. In his context, it needed to be done in order to drive out the sin that was robbing God of his glory and robbing them of his love. And we need the same radical response today. Not that we go out and beat people up or we pull their hair out. And it's not a radical response that is needed to the world. Notice, he is not pulling out the hair of Ammonites and Moabites. It's just God's own people. Nehemiah was concerned that God's glory is not seen by the way the world lives. God's glory is seen in us. And we need to be a people that have a radical response to the sin that is within us and among us. You know, if I ask the question, What will you do for love? I can get lots of answers. A lot of young men do really stupid things for the love of a beautiful woman. I have to admit, there was a time I was one of them. We'll act foolish, we'll act in nonsensical ways, and we don't care what the world thinks. We're in love. That's for the love of a person. The real question is, what will you do for the love of God? What will you throw out of your life for Him? Because you love Him. What lives within that you, not just hide, but you you conceal and nurture and protect What is it for love of God that that you'll throw away? What is it for the love of God in your life that you will beat into submission? What sin is it that you have wrestled with for decades? And you always say, God, I won't do it again. God, I'll be better. I'll do better. And yet we cling to it and we never let it go. Because we really aren't willing to fight against it. what will we pull out by the roots and be rid of? <laughs> you see, when we talk about the love of God, we have made it so schmarmy and generic that there is a God up there who just loves us all. Isn't that nice? But that's not our God. Our God is a jealous God who loved us before the world was ever created with all of his being so that the world was created because he loved us sent his son to die for us because he loved us he redeemed us from the pit of hell and sin because he loved us and what's our response to him to be As we commit ourselves to His Word, and like the Israelites did, read His Word. As we feel His Word, talk to us, speak to us, teach us, convict us. We're called upon to make Jesus our first pursuit. And then finally, and Doug, you'll be really proud of me, I've got three Ps today. To be children of God, we have to view Jesus as our most precious promise. Nehemiah had a tough calling, folks. It was not an easy job. As the leader, given the task of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, he had to constantly do things that people did not like, that made him unpopular, that put him in danger. It was a 24-7 burden. And you know what? He didn't have to do it. Just like us when we deal with difficult things, things that make us uncomfortable, things that are hard for us to do. So often it's tempting just to ignore it, just to walk away from it, whether it's things around us or things within us. And you know, saying or doing nothing will often bring us short-term peace and maybe even pleasure. But only obedience to the Word of God out of love for Him can ever bring joy and happiness. And that's why there's so little of it in the world, and even so little of it in His church. Therefore, Noah, or Nehemiah did not put his hope in his abilities, he did not seek to build the wall based on his own wisdom. But he put his hope in God. He understood that if, God's, if the wall of Jerusalem and if God's people were truly going to be rebuilt and reformed, it was going to have to be the work of God. That's why in verse 14, Nehemiah says, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Nehemiah understood That God owed him nothing. Everything that had been done by Nehemiah had been done out of love for God, by the power of God. And he says, "Oh God, by Your hand, make this happen. Don't end it. It's much like Moses standing before God and he says, You must establish the work of my hands. In verse 22... Nehemiah says, remember me for this also, O oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Nehemiah understood that all of his work had earned him nothing. In spite of all that he had done, the only standing he had before God was that God loved him and showed him mercy and grace. And he says, God, please continue to pour out your mercy on me. And then at the end of the book, he says, remember me With favor, oh my God. Father, as you have favored me, as you have given me the wisdom and the strength and the fortitude that I have needed to carry out your task, oh God, don't stop now. Continue to pour your favor on me. Nehemiah knew that there was something for him beyond this temporal calling. So he put his hope and faith and love in his God. He was more important to him than anything else. His God was his first love, his first pursuit, his only hope. As God goes about the task of constantly reforming us. May that be true of us too. Let's pray. Father, establish the work of our hands. Strip away from us that which we put before you. Give us a desire to live for your glory. And Lord, give us a love that understands that you alone are what we need. You alone are our hope. Do this, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen.